listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Hello, you're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week November 13 to November 17. It was a huge one, to say the least. Uh, we were joined in the studio by the wonderful Susan Alberti to talk about her new book, The Footy Lady, The Trailblazing Life of Susan Alberti. And uh, also Nick Kappa popped in for a very, very funny Friday Funny Buggers. Lucky, because that's in the name. Uh, <laughs> speaking of funny, we also had Randy, Randy Feltface. Um, Randy the Puppet came in to talk about his new show, Live at the Athenaeum. And we also talked about uh, how we celebrated um, Australia saying yes to marriage equality. Yes, Geraldine told us about being a first aid responder. And yep. uh, we learnt quite a lot about responding. At Jez copes and I don't cope under yep. pressure. But you yeah. thought you did. <laughs> <laughs> and we chatted to Peter Carey about his new novel, A Long Way From Home. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. This is Friday and Saturday at the Athenaeum, you can catch our next guest, the puppet, Randy, who is now joining us in the studio. Welcome to Breakfast. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. I need yeah. people to know that Randy's here and it's... Yes, I have I, never... I work very inter- well on radio. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. very effective for the three people in the yeah. room. <laughs> I could just be pre-recorded. Uh, we've had snakes, we've had crocodiles. I don't think we've ever had a, a puppet before. You had a crocodile in here. Yeah. yeah. Really? When was that? How did I not listen to that morning glory awesomeness? <laughs> that, was a, that was last year. We had last a little, year. Yeah. Was it a large croc or a nah, small? No, they've got a little one. A little snappy one, but yeah. it's still Jess's highest moment, her highest point on You're the show. You're a big croc fan, aren't yeah, you? I am a massive croc fan. Yeah. 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 Now, I've, uh, I've seen a croc. <laughs> Have you? Yeah, mate. Yeah, this year, in fact, I was in Cairns. I did some shows in Cairns, and then I kept driving north and went uh, up to the Daintree and went on a little croc tour, like oh. one of those jumping croc tours. No, or? no, no. Just the one where you sit on a boat with a little, with just like a small tinny, oh, and go and out go. and go. There's a bird. There's a snake. Oh, it's a croc. And we all went, yay! I thought a puppet would be very tempting. For, for, for I a... am the right colour, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what their, what their colour scheme is in terms of what they can see colour-wise, but I didn't hang my head over the edge of the boat, so just, fast to say. Just as well. So this shows uh, the promo for it offers pure, unrefined randy. Mm, what does mm. that mean? What can people expect if they come down on Friday night? Well, see, most of the time when I do my festival shows, I do like full um, hour-long kind of narrative structure things. I'll get really into kind of creating an arc and creating a world. With this one, I'm just going to stand there for an hour and oh. say things out of my face. <laughs> it's more like performance art. I might not even say anything until about the 27-minute mark. And then by, by that stage, people will be like, wow, this is daring. So what That's is not the problem? answer you wanted, is it? Okay. I'm going to be telling jokes and it's going to be the purest version of me because there's no props, there's no crazy lighting states, there's no sound cues, there's no shenanigans, there's no there's skinny no... man with a piano next to me. It's just uh... me standing there going, okay, guys, this is what I think about this. And people going, ha, ha, ha. You're pre- a genius of comedic awesomeness. Do you prefer doing live stuff to... TV or the screen? Well, no, I prefer doing TV and the screen, but no one wants to give me a gig, so I, <laughs> so I doing, have to... I have doing to, radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Coming up at 27 minutes past the hour, you're on Breakfasters. <laughs> I haven't been offered a commercial radio job yet. 
Maybe it's because yet. Oh, Mm. I use the word yet. Yet. (laughs) I'll say no, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) You started working with Sammy J back in... 2010? No, even earlier than that. We've been peddling our comedy wares since 2006, I think the first time we worked together was. But 2010 was when we did our show Ricketts Lane, which is the one that um, won awards and things, and that's what we ended up turning into a TV series, which you can watch on Netflix, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Because you started, what, you did shows together at, like, the Butterfly Club. Yeah. yeah. Well, we did shows separate. So we I, we mm. were both doing stand-up. This is a common misconception that, that we were a duo before we were singular. <laughs> we were plural before we were singular. <laughs> we used to do – we met on the scene and then we started doing these late-night sort of gigs at the Butterfly Club where we would just um, – what are you doing over there? <laughs> I just I'm, getting, I'm getting packed. I'm shaking. I'm packing you. Know you. That, you know that we can never be seen in the same room at the same. Anyway, I um. Oh, was I, all right? I um. Yeah, you're ruining I know. Radio. <laughs> the mystery. Um. I uh. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Sammy, whatever he does, his own thing. I don't care about him. Let's next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say because that is a long time together. You mm. must have had your ups and downs. You know what? We haven't. We've just had one big flat line. He and I <laughs> figured out our relationship in about the first three minutes of meeting and nothing has changed. You've never had a fight. Uh, we had one terse conversation after a 10-hour drive once where I was saying something and he was saying something and I said, I want to say this, and he said, I want to say this. And then we went, right, well, I don't feel heard. And he said, well, neither do I. And we pulled over and looked at the dog on the tucker box and after that it was all fine. I don't think it's possible to have a fight with Sammy J. Or... He is, in, if anything, he's infuriatingly diplomatic. Yes. He's probably the loveliest man I've yeah. ever met. But I didn't come in here to talk about my comedy husband. No. Jeff, next question. <laughs> Jesus. I prefer the crocodile. I wish you were in here all the time just to yell at Jeff, next question. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I can record it and you can make a little cart. So just oh, hit it. Please don't. That'd be they, great. They yeah. totally will do that. I was reading you completed a novel last year. What was that about? Oh, yes. Well, I, I'm, I did a show called Randy Writes a Novel um, uh, where I talk about the novel that I wrote. But I never actually wrote the book, oh. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> uh, what, I, what about your peers on the mm. comedy scene? What other puppets are out there that oh, you admire? Yeah. Uh, oh, on the comedy yeah, yeah. scene, I don't. I don't really admire any other ones, to be honest. I admire people like Jez. Thank you. Jez is kind of one of my benchmarks of awesome. We've done many gigs together, haven't we, we Jez? Have. Over and the years. We've had a lovely time. Been we on the road toured. together. We have, haven't we? Yeah. Mate, I can't remember where. <laughs> we did a couple Some of backward yeah, we did a couple in the middle of nowhere days on on road show. We one did. Time. Yep. Yep. Oh, rem- didn't we do like Werribee or something together? Yeah, something. Those yeah. were the days. Packenham. Packenham. We That's did right. Packenham. Packenham in. <laughs> yeah, good times. And we did not sign many autographs after that. We shot. did not sign any. <laughs> Why? No. What, what happened in Packenham? Oh, <sighs> oh, Look, Packenham, you have to go there and do comedy to understand. understand. Yeah, mm. it was, you know, it's just a, it's a different show. Yeah. The audience were a bit different. I. I'm going to be honest, I can't remember that gig at all. What happened? Oh, it was just an average gig. Just and an average gig. Yeah, we were just, you know, I don't... Uh, I think I am remembering this now. Yeah. And There's usually some, like, post-show cavernous foyer 
realization on Roadshow. When you do Melbourne Comedy Festival Roadshow mm. after the show, you go out in the foyer and you sign things, and people buy t-shirts and stuff. And if the show hasn't been that great, yeah. there's just that kind of tumbleweeds rolling oh. past walking oh. through the foyer. Going, just, we're not excited yeah. about any of it. Like, did you like the show? <laughs> show, show, <laughs> show. <laughs> happening. It's like, oh wow. Do you? Did you? What was that? I was going to ask you a question about the pack. Oh yeah, Jess mm. sometimes yells at the audience when they're not responding to her. Do you oh. ever do that? Because you seem to like oh, a bit of a yell. I love a yell. Yeah, I do no, actually. So do I. I totally do. But I like. I can. I um have the potential to dig that hole where if they're not responding, I'm like, oh, they don't like that. Let's see how far I can make them not like that. Ah. You, do you do that? Just do the comedy suicide thing where you just push it as far as you can. Uh, and see what happens. No, I don't go to the extent that you do at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. I like. I'll have moments where I'll something doesn't work that normally does and that's mm. when I go, that's when I yell at the audience. It's strange yeah. when you when you do a bit, you've done a thing for so many times and you've said it the exact same way with the yeah. exact same inflection and it always gets the same response and then one time you do it and there's just like silence. Yeah. And you what go. happened? Usually, and also because my I, the lights are in my eyes a lot, I can't see them very well yeah. out there. It is so, tricky. So I kind of don't know if something's happened in the room. You know what I mean? Like if someone's fainted yes. or if there's some strange thing going on and it's hard, like if you just go, oh, what's your problem? And you're like, someone's fainted. <laughs> we're having an emergency. I'm like, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> we, we're calling a paramedic. I can't, it's, hard to, it's hard to judge that stuff. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Are you talking about Peckenham? You've just been touring the UK recently? Speaking, Speaking of, of Peckenham, <laughs> what a link! Seamless! Segway! What Professional is that? was fantastic. Um, um, are they very, uh, very different audiences there to here? In the UK? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it depends. Like, I mean, I was in London at the end of last year. I've done Edinburgh a bunch of times. Edinburgh is kind of like a bubble of of audience anomaly. They're very responsive there. I found anyway. But in London, they were a little bit more, a bit more conservative. I think really? only in the, only in so much as like some of my stuff. There were some jokes where like, oh, you don't need to talk about that. That's not necessary. Oh. You know. Oh. Whereas here, they're like, ah, the puppet said a swear word. You know what I mean. <laughs> But, yeah, no, I found I, – I really liked it over there. I, I, I enjoyed doing that. I might go back there. Mm. Yeah. There is something about touring overseas and then coming home and realising that you do have a little bit of a home ground advantage. Oh. Like there is a little bit of – maybe it's just a bit more familiarity or maybe it's just the style of humour or something, but it's like you do I, – I, I'll come back from doing Edinburgh and do the same bit and go, oh, that got a refreshingly different yeah. reaction. I think it's like you're you, – you're exposed. Like, people know you. So that's mm. half the battle won when you get up in front of an audience. I yeah, think. yeah. So it's, Can I just ask you who's on yeah. your You're wearing a really cool outfit. What, I, I've on? got a picture of David Lee Roth oh, on my that, T-shirt. I thought it was David Lee Roth. Are yeah. you a fan? Uh, I'm not a massive <laughs> Yeah, I am a little bit. Yeah. I am a little bit. Okay. I've got to respect the man. Yeah, right. But um, I'm not sure why, but mostly because of his tight trousers. I love his tight <laughs> trousers. Very, very tight. Love, yes. Love, there's many layers to your outfit. <laughs> Where do you get your clothes from? Where this was talking? made by a friend of mine, a guy called Dave Hart, who make, he's, he's got a little clothing label called Donde Stan. Just for puppets? Well, no, just well. These are short. These are just small ones. I'm, I've got a bit of a short frame. Oh, you know what I mean. So yeah. he 
actually gave me a whole bunch of T-shirts when we oh. were making the TV show. And then we put one on there. We had this one um, – I wore this one T-shirt and we didn't get proper clearance on it and we had to go back and – well, Edited I didn't it. have to go back, but a room full of oh. people had to go back and, like, frame by frame change my T-shirt in post. Oh, oh no. I know. <laughs> otherwise we would have got sued. <laughs> All right, so I think it cost about the same to change it. But Please stop doing those intimidating stares. Having you in the studio today or mm, watching mm. Jeff's face trying to talk to a puppet on the You've radio. You've done very well, yeah. Jeff. <laughs> that packet of link was gold. The show is live at the Athenaeum. It's at the Athenaeum this Friday and Saturday. We've been talking to Randy. Breakfast, yes! <laughs> Three triple R. You are listening to Breakfasts with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. It's the day after the results of the postal survey came in and you would think, everyone would think that the person struggling today would be me. Absolutely. I was. I, I think that's up, fair to say. But you've got, you, you're, you're shining, you you're a shining light. And vigor. Yep, I am just good at what I do. Uh, Jeff, on the other hand, oh, you must have had quite a big day yesterday. Tell us all about it. <laughs> Because you're struggling today. No, I'm fine. You're barely <laughs> holding yourself up in the corner. <laughs> Listeners, that none of that is true. No, it was good. I had um, I had the best day. Because you the, went to, you went to the state library. Oh man, it was so yeah. it's so rare you get to be, or certainly for um, in recent times, it's so rare you get to be in a huge crowd of people celebrating a political political victory like that. And so, like a good one, a good, yeah, they're mm. being a positive. Mm. So I don't know. I reckon there was maybe five thousand people. It's a bit hard to judge those yeah. crowds, but it was a big, big crowd. So it was standing room only. It was really, you know, you were, so I was pushed right up against the back of the State Library. And, um, you know, they had speakers and, you know, I guess some people were listening, but everyone's just waiting for the, the announcement to to happen. And how did – were you just um – like was it just an audio recording? Of, no, no, no. They were playing. They were playing the streaming. Um, I think ABC streaming. Oh yeah, and then it dropped out. And then it dropped out. <laughs> so it really came down to like the last five seconds. I and love then it that started the, buffering. Love if people weren't angry enough at Malcolm Turnbull at the time. Anyway, <laughs> oh, no. that the internet drops out. People are yeah. heckling about. It. And then that um, the guy from the ABS was really enjoying his moment. Oh, yes, yeah, so we were watching that. That was. <laughs> But we so we were all watching it here in, in the Triple R green room because we thought a few of us would hang out together and watch it while Sarah Savage was on air. It'd be a nice kind of group feeling. And when the guy from the ABS came out and he just kept talking and talking, I did feel okay because I feel like he had this look in his eyes. He was very smiley and he felt yeah. very relaxed. Uh. And I remember thinking, if this result is a negative result, he's far too feeling far too jolly about all these other <laughs> stats that no one cares about for this to be a no. So I had this. I had a little bit of a, like a belief inside of me. Yeah, it was weird. It was, I was, yeah, I kind of, do you know what's funny? When um, the worst part was when he said how many people voted and we all had to do maths. Yeah, <laughs> you could yeah. see even the crowd. I was, was back a tentative yeah. cheer. Yeah. Everyone was like, bad? yeah, 7 million. Is that, is that 50%? Uh, yeah. Do you know what it was? Because for some reason I thought he'd said that 23 million people had voted. I don't know where I got that number from. So when he said 7 million, like I was like, that's 
hardly any <laughs> <laughs> compared to 23. And I was like, oh, no. And then all of a sudden, and then everyone cheered. So I missed when he said 61% because yeah. I was too busy being sad about <laughs> seven, 7 million. Seven seven million, million three. So I was like, oh, no. And then, you know, and then I had to take Lloyd into another room because he was, you know, excited. Yeah, Lloyd was very excited about everyone cheering. <laughs> And the results. Great. But yes, and then so everyone was hugging each other and um, it was just great. It was just this really fantastic... The footage of it is yeah. quite uh, amazing to watch. And speaking of beautiful footage to watch, um, uh, my mate Penny Wong, when she, the moment oh, that she found oh. out, it's all the emotions in a space of like... <laughs> 10 seconds. I think it's the, also the, probably the most human moment we've seen from her in this whole campaign. Like, she's obviously been yes. a big where, where, spokesperson. What's that? I just talked over the top of me, Jeff. Sorry. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. At, at Parliament, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why? Oh, I, I just want to go. I, I think maybe um, Shorten was in Melbourne, was it at, at the State Library? I'm not sure. You couldn't really hear the speeches very well. I but think it was in Melbourne, though, because also Darren Hinch was there and there was a few other people. Yeah, there. Sam Destiari yeah. was there. Um, but it was just, oh, God, it was, it was so beautiful. Like, I um, <clears throat> I left here. Had, we had a glass of wine here. Who cares? Turn it. 10am, don't worry about it. And then um, then drove home. Just had one, well, half a glass, all right? Don't judge me. Um, <laughs> but then um, drove home and, and got home and Celia was so excited and she was just like, I've just been watching every, you know, just had it on ABC News and we just sat there together and watched watched it and it was just, oh, this is so great. Um, it was just, there were, I, I ended up taking myself out for lunch. I went, this is oh, great. Nice. Feeling really good. So... Just went for a walk down the street and found a nice, nice little cafe what restaurant. What did you eat? What I did chicken, chicken risotto. Lovely. Two glasses of white oh, wine. Wow, <laughs> it's all right. So I walked, uh, and that was the best thing. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm celebrating. I'm gonna have a nice time. There's something, there's something really, um, I don't know, impar- Like I just walked down the street and I'd looked up, um, like in. My electorate, there was like, I think it was 73% that voted yes. So it's just kind of just put a spring in my step that I was just walking around going, You're probably on my side. You're probably yeah, on my yeah. side. And it just makes such a, a a difference that you you don't even think about before that. And then it's like, Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Um, so I had a, I had a lovely lunch um, and then kind of went home, had a nap. And then Celia came out and she'd um, got me a, a custard tart. She knows I love custard. Uh, got me a custard tart, put hundreds and thousands, made it rainbow, put some candles in it. <laughs> and then we opened some champagne and so celebrated. And then, and then I went into um, uh, to Trades Hall. We all were in Trades Hall. We are all at Trades Hall together. Yeah. Well, I didn't see Jeff. No. Did you guys not see each other? No. But I hung out with both of you for extended periods of time. Well, separately. Oh, well. No, no, I was looking for you. I wasn't even sure you were there. Um, I told you she I was. Well, yeah. I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't listening. Oh, I was just talking over the top of me the whole time. It was great. Like I, I, I was there, caught wet lips, and I was meeting up with friends, but then they couldn't get in. It was a massive it's line. Packed. How good was that vibe, though? So good. Just to be also yeah. like, there's something one about a street party that just feels so exciting because we never get to have street parties anymore, and just to be with that many people who were yeah. on your side and celebrating. It yeah. was. I, had a, I can't remember the last time I've been in something like that. It's just one of those moments where you realise that actually most people are basically decent when it comes down to it. You know, when you yeah. take all this yeah. bullshit away, actually most people. Can I just one? 
one stat that just popped up that mm. I reckon is really kind of cool. The, the, one of the Greens um, polling people said that 20 years ago in Braddon in Tasmania, polls showed 70% of the population supported 25 years jail for homosexual sex. That's 20 years ago. Wow. That Jesus. seat just voted 54% for marriage equality. So that is an extraordinary change over yeah. the space of, of 10 years. 25 years, years yeah. Like, it sort of shows that, you know, People change. Mm. You know yeah. what I mean? Because, like, you know, in the whole community, I don't think that's a very long time. No. No, no, no. When mm. you think about, like, the civil rights struggle for, you know, African Americans and how long that's been going, that is ex- amazing. That is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But well, how much fun was it last night? Yeah. Oh, so great. And then I ended up, I met up with some other mates <clears throat> and we just found a, a nice little bar and people came and met us there and... It was just great. Do you know what I really loved about it is I felt it felt like New Year's Eve for me. <laughs> like it was, and I went and the, but there was also a moment where it was like, oh, this must be what Sarah felt like with the day that the, the Tigers won the grand final. <laughs> so, like, oh, oh, what a great year this has been. This it has been, been a good year, you know. I actually was speaking to our program manager um, Beck about that, and she said, "Tigers win a grand final, marriage equality. What more could you? What more could you ask for?" <laughs> yeah, there's a few things on yeah. my list, but it's <laughs> a good start. Though. We'll get there. Three triple. You're tuned to Triple R. This show is Breakfasters. The Footy Lady, The Trailblazing Life of Susan Alberti is a new book written by Stephanie Asher, published by Melbourne University Publishing. As the title suggests, it's about Susan Alberti, who is now joining us in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming in. The book describes your experiences growing up. It begins with your experiences growing up in Ashwood in the 50s. What was your relationship to football when you were a girl? Well, I think I started... uh, developed an interest in football or VFL, AFL football about the age of six when I was always um, kicking a football in the backyard or down at the park and with my brother's mates and um, I love the I love affair that started when I was about six. So it goes back a long time, a very long time. You had to uh, give up playing footy at yes. about 15. Your dad mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. I think it's getting too rough for you now. Yeah. How did that feel when you were a, a younger woman? And also, did you ever anticipate that there would possibly be women playing elite football? Well, certainly when I was six, I didn't think women would be playing football. But I um, developed this passion for football and I wanted to play in a team, a structured team. So my role, I started off in the cheer squad. I think I'm the, perhaps the only director in the AFL who's come from the cheer squad. <laughs> and, a good, and a good yes. cheerer, I hear yeah. you are. <laughs> claim to fame. That's my claim. <laughs> so we wanted to play in, a, in in our own team. So we it was men and uh, boys and girls, and of course boys at fifteen are getting a bit rough. And we play on a Sunday afternoon because footy wasn't played on a on a Sunday at that time, and uh, it was getting too rough. And Dad said, and Dad was a, an umpire. My brother was an umpire and Dad said, enough is enough, you've got to hang up your boots. And at 15, I had to. I never recovered from that, having to stop playing football. However, I still kicked a football and still did, you know, kick to kick and uh, with, you know, my brother and his mates. And um, it never left me. That passion never let me. But it's in terms of whether I thought we'd ever have a league of our own, not when I was six, but when we were 15, I was determined that we were going to do something for women. But all obviously at 15 I didn't have the resources or the wherewithal or the know-how how to make it happen. But it was a burning desire um, that I had for all those years to make sure that women now have a leg of their own. When that finally happened last year, um, that first game of the, the first season that... Carlton Collingwood match was um, one of the most special things that mm. um, 
that has happened. <laughs> um, like I, I watched it on TV with some mates and it was, you know, it was really beautiful to watch. What was the experience like for you? Well, it was truly remarkable. I've only waited 55 years for it to happen. Actually, uh, women's football is more than 102 years old. You may not know that, but in fact it goes back even further. But in the history books, when the men went to war in 1915 and then, of course, the women slotted into their positions. It really is like the movie, A League of Their Own. It really is. (laughs) Well, the first 100 years is the hardest. But anyhow, (laughs) um, that game, I went to the official function. You know, that was all very nice. I don't go for the food, I go for the footy. I've always loved football. And, of course, I went down to the Collingwood rooms for obvious reason because of Mo and of course the others went to the Carlton rooms and all I wanted to do was sit and be on my own and experience that moment in time I'd waited for for so long I was quite emotional and mm. I didn't want people to see me so I was sitting there I was crying and people come up to me and said are you okay? Oh, just one of them no, to leave me alone <laughs> so I moved I moved a couple of times and you know where I finished up? In the Collingwood cheer squad Oh I let, know, how they, dare you? I know <laughs> They left me alone. They they lost. They were gracious in defeat. But I did experience a moment in time that will last me with me for the rest of my life. It was just truly remarkable. And the standard was so good. And the, the spectators that just had a wonderful time. But what I noticed more than anything were the families have come back to football. They've got little girls now wearing numbers on their back of their heroes. And boys and girls coming in kick to kick. It was just Remarkable, and of course we mm. repeated it the next night at the Witten Oval. We yeah. had another sellout. We had to close the doors or close the gates. Yeah, it was quite amazing. And the other thing I really loved, um, there was an exhibition match that uh, my friends went to. That my friend rocked up. Uh, she'd made a lemon lemon meringue pie and brought it in like on a glass tray. And it's like, who goes to the football? Who they don't allow glass in the MCG. Like, yeah. you know? <laughs> it's just that, that kind of old school kind of you know. They're the reasons why we love football. Mm. Like you go together as a family and with mates and it just it brought all that back. And well, it was bringing the families back. Yeah. That's what I wanted to see. Uh, I wanted to see boys and girls, you know, and because, you know, it can be the daughter now can be playing. Or yeah, the it's son so inclusive. Yeah. There was yeah. a really great moment at the end of one of the first games where I went down into the race of Princess Park because you could mm. do that at Princess yes. Park mm, and yes. be with the footballers and there was all these little boys and little girls lined up high-fiving yeah. the women as they ran past yeah. and I just kind of, I couldn't stop crying yeah. because I thought I never thought I'd see, particularly I think the little boys seeing women in that way yeah. and just being so excited about seeing oh, this. just very emotional. I, I still get goosebumps even thinking about that yeah. day and then, of course, the next night and... At my own home at the Witten Oval where I was a little girl, I'd been in the cheer squad and, and always dreamt that one day maybe we'd play at that elite level at my own club. Of course we did. And what we've got to remember too is the two clubs that really made this happen and a lot of people don't know and they need to be recognised is the Melbourne Football Club mm-hmm. and the Western Bulldogs. They really took a big risk. They went out on a limb and they believed in this. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, I was very close to joining the Bulldogs. I was still got a membership. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I I I ended up going for um for opting for Melbourne because I knew yes. that they were yeah they had a lot to do with it all happening as did you. But um, oh, Melbourne were incredible. You had Debbie mm. Lee, and of course you got Daisy, who's just an icon of women's football. But they were remarkable, Melbourne. I mean, I sponsored the Bulldogs personally for mm. the first three years, and they got their own sponsor to sponsor them. So, as I said, the rest is history. But if it was not for those two teams, and we must acknowledge Melbourne Football Club, yep. they are trailblazers, and I'm very proud of those two clubs. Mm. Mm. I think we could call you a trailblazer in so many <laughs> ways as well. Reading the book, 
I was just kind of blown away uh, about the way that you were so determined in your life. You worked in the building industry, this notoriously blokey industry, and you were very successful at what you did. And then you stepped into football mm-hmm. and uh, you joined the Western Bulldogs at a really low ebb in their mm-hmm. in their life. But there's this great quote in the book about how you, even your presence, your physical presence kind of created ripples mm-hmm. in, in the football world. What did that feel like? Were you aware of the ripples that you were creating at the time? Well, I've always said that we are a professional football club and it, it starts from the top down. And if you present well, and that's really t- it's very important to me, and our players could have been oh, a little bit sloppy. Yeah. And I think I was a bit like their big mum, you know, I was there and I was looking, making sure that they were well presented. I said, you are professional footballers and you have to play the part and look the part. You have sponsors paying a lot of money to sponsor you to get out on the ground. So you have a, a, a responsibility to present well. So it was very important to me. I mean, ever since I was a little girl, I didn't have much as a child, trust me. I had maybe had two outfits, but they were ironed and pressed and, and clean, and, and that's what I wore uh, when I was growing up, and I've been like that all my life, and, that's, and I am who I am, and I think they respected that, but when I joined the club, I think there were some ripples because who's this woman coming along? Will she get into too much detail? Well, I didn't. I was there for a reason. We were on our knees. We had 10,000 members. We were ready to go under, and we had a big job. And the first job they gave me was to find $32 million in the west of Melbourne. Now, they oh, only give luck. that to women. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they only mm. give that to women, those sort of jobs. But that was my first job for the redevelopment. I, and, and that's the job I, I did. And, and I had great support. And, um, and the players are really now very professional and beautifully presented. And I'm very proud of them. They're, they're like, like family to me. And mm. that's how I treat them. You um, won a legal case against Channel 9 and the footy show panellist Sam Newman for mm. Newman's comments about mm. women in the game. At the time, did you see, were you thinking about him as an anomaly or did you see him as sort of representative of uh, a cultural problem more generally? Oh, look I, look, I just treat people fairly. I mean, I just treat everyone the same. But at that particular time, um, he was just... Not doing very nice. I don't really want to go into too much detail because mm. the case has been, you know, done and dusted. But he was casting um, dispersions, aspersions upon me about what would I know about football, and I and I'd seen what he'd been doing with the people in the west of Melbourne and, and belittling a lot of unfortunate people. And whilst I live in the east, all my work is in the west of Melbourne, and these people needed to be respected. And of course, then he had a go at me about what would I know about football. It's a long story mm. about mm. that. And I thought, well, you have to be taught a lesson. Enough is enough. I don't care who you are. You just don't do this and talk about people like this. You must show respect. I was brought up like that. That's how I was brought up by my parents, to show respect and be respectful. And um, of course, um, that actually gave women are more of a platform in sport than any other time. He did us a good service, actually, Hmm. by really bringing out women in football and saying, well, yeah, they may know a bit about football, but during that period of time that I was embarking upon that action, I was struggling for my life. I had cancer. And, uh, And it was interesting. I got hundreds and hundreds of emails, and most of them were from men just congratulating me and supporting me and saying it's about time that women spoke out and I think women should more should speak out more and more. That was a huge moment for me as a football yes. fan. I, I'm, yeah. I'm a mad Tiger supporter yes, yeah. oh. and I now know what <laughs> it's like to win a grand final and I love Peggy and I love Caroline Wilson but oh, that, yes. I always felt quite 
I don't know, I, I never felt like I could be a part of football culture. I always mm. had this barrier between me and a show yeah. like the footy show that yes. I watched growing up. Yes. So that was a really important mm. thing for me when you pursued that. Mm. And I feel now in the last 10 years, football has changed so oh. much. Where do you think we're at culturally? Look, I think it's more than sport. Um, I go out a fair bit and I speak to a lot of people. I'm actually going to do something this morning. And I just feel it's given w- women more a, a platform that they've never had, not just in sport but also in business. And young women today can now say, I can do anything. I can be anything. I can do anything. Because look what sport has done. It's elevated women and it's giving them the opportunity they didn't get that when I was a young woman growing up. You can do everything. You can be the best. You mm. never seem to... The one thing I noticed in the book is you never seem to question your right to be anywhere. Did you internally ever question your right to be anywhere? No. I grew up in a very difficult area. I grew up in the hard school of Knox. My best friend was murdered and raped at 17. Mm. I used to play a lot of sport with her. We did all sport together. And it could have been me that night. I didn't, I didn't wait. Uh, I waited. She didn't wait to go up that laneway. I waited for my dad that night. It could have been me. So I guess that was a turning point in my life. But also it was a very tough area. I had to fight for survival. I was working from the time I was 14, part-time and holidays. I didn't always like to to say I'm bored if I did mum would say get the vacuum cleaner (laughs) but you know I've always worked so that's the resilience I suppose and it's just come from childhood and you know I had strict parents I had good parents and they did the best they could Mm. and I've been fortunate in life how did this book come about it's written by Stephanie Asher did you work how did did you work on it and was it painful going through some of these memories with her well Stephanie um, Stephanie came to see me a a number of um, people had come to see me about writing a book and I just dismissed it. But I liked her. I just <laughs> liked. I like what she did. She's from the Geelong Advertiser. But the reason why I did this book, it's not something I really planned to do. About 30 years ago, my daughter, who was a very smart young lady, she said, Mum, you should write a book about your life because you've been in a male-dominated industry for so long. And I was in um, the building for 45 years and it was tough work, trust me, mm. very tough and I grew calluses from a very early age. And I said, no, Danielle, I'm too busy, and I just dismissed it. When I was in New York two weeks before she died, she said, Mum, have you written that book? And I said, no, I haven't. She said, Mum, promise me one day that you'll write that book. Now, you'll promise me. She must have known something I didn't know. Two weeks later, she was dead. Mm. Well, it took me 15 years to find the courage to do the book because it was a last wish. And I was very... Danielle and I were good mates. It took us a while to grow up. We both grew up. And she was about 21. Both of us did. And we became extremely close. And I knew it was something she always wanted me to do. She said, Mum, the kids love you. They love your determination. You should write about how hard it's been. So really, it was a book I never wanted to write, but it was to fulfil my daughter's last wish. And that's why I'm doing it. And the proceeds don't go to me. It's going to go to medical research. So. Well, we haven't even really touched on that. Yeah. You, I mean, you've devoted most of your life to raising funds to find a cure for mm. diabetes. Where is that fight at? at the moment? Well, I'm not just involved with diabetes, um, also in other chronic diseases, but especially diabetes. We have islet cell transplantation, we have stem cell, we've got technology that's so advanced now that frustrates me because people are getting very rich with all this technology, but we still haven't got a cure. And I promised my daughter, as she lay next to me on the plane, dead on the plane, with a blanket over, I said, Danielle, I'll never give up, not till I take my last breath. I'll continue to knock on doors, raise money, and make the public aware of this insidious disease and how it kills people, because diabetes doesn't kill you. uh, Insulin just keeps you alive. It's the complications that kill 
our children and, and adults. Mm. And of course, we've got a big problem with type 2. We've got an epidemic in this country. Mm. So that really worries me too. Nearly 2 million people with type 2 diabetes and that can be prevented. Type 1, you cannot prevent it. It's uh, autoimmune. It's forever. There's a lot more we could talk about. We're running out of time. The book sure. is The Footy Lady, The Trailblazing Life of Susan Alberti. It's written by Steph- Stephanie Asher. It's published by Melbourne University Publishing. We've been talking to Susan Al- Albert- Alberti. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. And that was the book of the week last week. Oh, well ah. done. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. You are, <laughs> you're listening to Breakfast. Mm. We're having a really good time. We are. It's crazy. <laughs> Off mic, the craziness. Uh, <sighs> I didn't mention this the other day. When uh, I was at the um, the street party yes, a couple of days ago, having a great time. Was it? Yeah, no, it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah. yesterday. No, the, no. No. The day oh. before, Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday night. night. What a great couple of days it's been. <laughs> Something of a blur. <laughs> um, so I was there and I was walking out to meet some friends and as I was walking past uh, the um, trades hall on the steps, this woman uh, went to step down the steps and, and tripped, fell backwards and, and and she was so, like, close enough that I could almost touch her but not close enough that I could stop her from falling. Right. But made me first on scene. As first aid officer, first on scene. First on scene. Yeah. Do you know what to do? Uh, yes. Well, I, my first aid is not up to date and I was mm-hmm. made aware of that as soon as I went, oh, no. <laughs> that was my first thought. I went, oh, no, I've got to update my first aid. <laughs> 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 but I saw, and I'm like, oh, no, it's okay. Um, I'm going to um, help her because I, I saw her... She kind of did that classic, put her arm out yep. to oh. stop the fall, and it did. Classic mistake. It did not go well. Uh, so, and I was there to help, trying to help her up because she was kind of getting up herself, um, and I think she'd had a few, so probably was not aware of how much trouble she was in. Um, so, and I just said, "That's right, we're just going to sit down," and then, but then her mate comes over. And just the classic drunken mate of just grabs her arm and goes, "Come on, just get up. We'll, come, we'll just go home. We'll just take it." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" And I had flashbacks from when I'd um, when I got car doored, and I'd um, my little finger had um, been dislocated. So just oh. and this guy went to help me and just and grabbed my my hand oh. to help me up. And it was like, and some, thankfully someone else is there going. Whoa, because and I must have yelled at him as well. I just went, don't. And I just saw this woman grab her friend's arm and to lift her up. And I was just like, oh, you are not helping. I just went, I just went, so can you maybe not hold on to to that? Because I think that I think she might have hurt that. So we, um, and I kind of went, I think we might need to get an ice pack. And did you do rice? Is that what it is? Rice? Rest. Oh, oh so it's changed now, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's. It was. She needed much more than ice. Okay, right. <laughs> um, and it was. Or was so, she reacting? Like was she sort of screaming or no, crying? No, no. She or? was kind of sitting there. Was you know in a bit of pain, just going oh. And then, um, but at the same time, all this is happening. I'm trying to help her. I'm trying. To, there's a lot of things happen at once. Toby was there, Toby Halligan, our, you know, political... I love that he just appeared on the spot, yeah, like just, Super goes, Ted. Yeah, yeah, he goes, 
hate it. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. And Super I, Tobes is here. Yeah, and I went, Toby, can you find someone that knows first aid? This woman has hurt herself and we need a professional here. And he goes right onto it and he got someone else and then someone else is like, first aid is down that way. And uh, another lady goes, I'm onto it. And she runs off to go and oh. get someone to come back. I love community spirit. Yeah, it was so great. And then, and but the whole time this that was happening as well. And then this woman comes up beside me and kind of taps me on the shoulder and goes, "Excuse me, are you are you a comedian?" I just went, "Excuse me, are you a, are you a comedian?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> in the middle of all of this, now is not the time. It's <laughs> so, not right now. now. The first aid response. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not up to date, so don't trust me." And um, I just went. I went, so, yes, Geraldine. And she went, oh, my God, I love you. And I'm like, okay, but I've really got to try and help this woman out right now. And then and then there was, like, someone else that appeared on the scene and she was, like, kind of looking in and stuff and I turned to her and I went, oh, because I could see it. I went, she knows what she's doing. And I went, hey, do you first aid, do you know? And she goes, I'm a nurse. And I went, Really get in there because no one else here knows what's going on because mm. it's just me and this other fan <laughs> just going, oh, are you okay? And the, and the drunken best mate going, Carl, we'll just take you home. So I, the nurse kind of got in um, and that was, I went, oh, now it's my... Now I'm, I can tap out. Yeah, tapped out. And I said to I'm like, I really hope you're okay. Um, what a day to remember this, you know, and then kind of left it to her devices. But I walked away feeling pretty good about how yeah. well... Oh, so before I went away, the woman grabbed me for a search. She goes, do you mind if I get a selfie? I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> but, but I did have this, you know, oh, good on me for yeah. kind of not, you do know... you when you've had a few drinks? Yeah. And that, you know, that you would be able to keep it together. So how much of it all... I know your certificate's not enough to date, but how much of it all did you remember? When you were saying that, I was trying to think, because, you know, in another life I worked in disability and I did all those first aid things, mm. but I can't remember any of it. I was just trying to think, when you said the acronym, I was trying to think of Rice, what... Rest, Rice, ice. All I could think of was, stop, was stop, drop and roll, which is the one for oh, when you're on fire. Geez. Which I learned in prep. <laughs> so well, I feel that's like that's, that's the only right. thing that you've retained. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember what is the first thing you're supposed to... And Dr. ABC, remember that? But I think that's changed now too. There's something about airways. Danger. Or... No, it's doc, it's, for danger. It's Dr. ABCD now. Ah, oh, there you go. Uh, no, and the, they've also, the, and they added in a... Um, Dr. Re- danger Response Airways. airways anyway, breath- but they've also added in a, a C as well. Because people were doing it but forgetting to call an ambulance. Oh, my God, so they had to add that in. Oh, yeah. yeah. No need to call an ambulance. So I've got was, this under control. Yeah. yeah. Doctors, I think it's doctors. Yeah, it's doctors oh. ABCD. So it's um, danger, danger response. response, send for help. Oh. Airways, breathing, circulation, and the D is for defibrillator. You call a friggin' ambulance. Yeah, because people were forgetting to do it. When I was at uh, Meredith last year, I mean, uh, I was walking with a mate of mine who was feeling really lightheaded. Mm. I'd had a few drinks and we were just, we said, oh, we'll go down to the toilets and get you a, we'll get you a drink. And she was walking and her face went really pale. I said, we'd only just got there. I don't know why I'd had a few drinks already, but she was, she was, she hadn't had anything. And then as we were walking towards the toilet, she just collapsed and collapsed into my arms and my other friend's arms. And then we had some guy run up and was like, we were trying to hold her up and we're dragging her. To, and I thought, my God, I don't know what's going on. 
Was she completely out of it? Yeah, like her eyes kind of roll back and she she just collapsed into her arms. And luckily this other guy came up, or a guy or a girl, and they said, you know, what's wrong with her? And um, all I was saying to everyone was, it's all right. She hasn't done any drugs, and he's and she hasn't done yeah. any drugs. And then he goes, "Okay, well, let's get her to the." So we dragged her to the, literally dragged her to the uh, first aid. They've got a really good first aid at Meredith, and took her in. And she said to me, Sarah, all you did was walk into a room and yell at the nurses. She hasn't taken any drugs. You need to look after her. What? And I can't remember doing this. I'd had a few drinks, but I think that I took control of that situation really well. Do you? Yes. I don't. I think you acted like a mad woman. I just wanted to make it really clear. There you go. Something was wrong with her. It was really bad. Because I was like, that I don't know. Made me think that she had taken drugs when a drunken mate drags in it. <laughs> And go, she hasn't taken any drugs. She's taken no drugs. Oh, I thought it handled it quite well. Anyway, she was she was taken. She was fine. They got her there and they just gave her. I think she just had a really big day at work. Got up too early and they gave her some liquid. Yeah, and they just they just fainted. Just from like the overwhelming happiness of being at Meredith. You saved her life, and I did did save her life. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. City. Hey, it's time for Friday Funny Buggers. Please welcome Nick Kappa. Yeah. I was going to sing, what was that Elton John song? He goes, Saturday, Saturday. Saturday. I was going to go Friday, Friday, <laughs> fr- but no one could get no one would get that I'm doing a parody of that song, so <laughs> that's why I didn't do that. A weird but, song. <laughs> yeah, but I just thought I'd tell you guys that anyway. <laughs> what a great start. <laughs> Good to uh, see you. Oh, yeah, it's great to see you guys. I've been, uh, sorry I've been away. I've been, I've been about. I've been touring. Oh. Yep, don't answer to nobody now. Just on the road. <laughs> Just a maverick on the road. And uh, <laughs> yep. where have you been on your world tour? S- screw the man. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I went to uh, Vanuatu. Uh, that was cool. Did you, did you oh. do gigs in Vanuatu? Uh, no, no. You God, went on no. a holiday. <laughs> they would not get the humour of Nick Kaplan. <laughs> <laughs> no, pe- people with English as their first language struggle. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was good. I, I, I was on a I was on a cruise ship. Um, I, I, I met oh. the van, van, what, and I caught a, caught a cruise ship back. And oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was great. Yeah. Is it your first time doing doing a cruise ship? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're doing gigs on the cruise ship. Yeah, it was it was great. It was really good. The um, thank goodness for that because you know what's the one bad thing about doing a gig on a cruise ship is mm. like if you have a bad one, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah, and that's what happened to me. Uh, <laughs> 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 well. The first one, yeah, it wasn't so good. It was a pretty rough crowd. So it was just basically really? controlling a, a rough crowd. But I, I, and, and it was me as well. I got a bit complacent. I did this game show and I knocked it out of the park. I thought, oh, they, they're going to love the humour of Nick Kappa. <laughs> like I, I, was, I, was, I was getting weird on him. I was trying everything, you know. But different crowd from 9.30 in the morning to 10.45 at night. <laughs> <laughs> So I just stayed in my room for a day and a bit (laughs) until they changed passengers and then I figured it all out and it was great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I figured I I knew 
I knew what to do on it, mm. you know. But yeah, still got to write. A, yeah, a lot you learnt your lesson. Short, shorter jokes, but yeah, it was it was great. It was really really fun. And then I went to um, when I got back, I went on the amazing traveling comedy tour, and we went to uh, Canberra, Goulburn, and um, Orange. Oh, and uh, yeah, it was funny because in Orange we played at uh, Tom Gleason's brother, comedian Tom Gleason's brother, his cafe. Oh, and wow. he is exactly yeah. like Tom Gleason, but he just talks like he's not doing bits. <laughs> so he just tells you where the toilets are, but in the style of Tom Gleason. <laughs> and, oh yeah, but his cafe was awesome. It was great. And then in in Goulburn, um, we played at this little uh, music kind of venue. Mm. And anyway, after the show, like. These kind of beefcake kind of guys, like typical kind of country-looking guys, uh, said, hey, why don't you come and have a few beers with us on the balcony? Um, and, you know, they had their girlfriends with them and, you know, like beautiful country people. Yeah. But, you know, we wrote them off as like, oh, yeah, cool. Well, yeah, what are they going to talk? Anyway, turns out all full-on comedy nerds. Oh, Just wow. sat us down, just, you know, and it was such a great night and – because it had this old guy at the back just sitting there quietly, right? And you know when you know when you start talking in depth some, about something about comedy or comedy shows, you're like, oh yeah, what about this show, The Office? How good was that? <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, everyone starts doing their best bits from The Office. They're like, what about this show on Netflix? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> right. Everyone's just everyone's just upgrading each other, talking yeah. about a good time. Anyway, this old guy sitting on the back goes. I'll tell you the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and we're like, here we go. Here we go. This is going to be great. He's going to knock it out of the park. He hasn't said anything so far. He goes, oh, brother, where art thou? In Italian. Um, he, he, goes, he goes, man, I sat on the remote one time and I couldn't change back. <laughs> and I had, oh, well, oh, it was so funny. They're all wearing American clothes. They spoke in Italian. <laughs> It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Oh, my God. Uh, and, and we're like, oh, this is the best. And uh, we just thought it was funny. Talked about it for the rest of the trip. Anyway, someone found a link. It is pretty funny. Uh, I've got to say, not to, not, to, not to say that the Italian language is uh, hu- humorous, but, you know, yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe he is right, you know. Oh, on, my. Oh. On, on the way over to uh, – I, I watched a movie on a plane and I've been meaning to see Wonder Woman for ages. Mm-hmm. I thought, Wonder Woman, this is going to be sick. Knock knock it out of the park, right? Yeah, you're but, a fan of those types of movies, like you, of all the other ones. Yes and no. I, I like the ones where they're pretty brutal <laughs> and people die. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, fair, yeah, fair yeah. I liked all the Captain America ones. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah but then I thought they were just – they, they were kind of taking the piss off for a while. They just kept throwing them out without, you know. I, I didn't. I liked the first Iron Man. I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Um, but now I can't watch it in because it's just about Americans <laughs> saving people from Afghanistan with a man in an iron suit. Like, thank God for this <laughs> fantasy film to heal. <laughs> what a band aid. <laughs> uh, and, and anyway, I was like, one woman, you know, like apparently did great things for feminism and things like that. And I was like, this is sick. Female director. Director. And look, I, I, I got to say, I liked it. However, a lot of problems with it. All right, oh, a lot yeah. of problems. A lot of problems. All right. Love that you're heading into this territory. I'm not nervous at all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not nervous. Think how nervous I am. No, no, it was great though. Like the cast and everything, so good. Yeah. And you know, yeah, it was directed. No, tell, by us about your tell us about your problems. But I'm going to tell my problems. Right. 
because Wonder Woman, she's a beautiful woman from the island of Amazonia where all the women are very beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. And she, there's her enemy is this other woman who has a disfigured face and creates these weird gases that kill people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Look, if it was up to me, right, I'd want the disfigured woman with a chemistry degree to beat the beautiful woman that knows that it's got a whip, you know. <laughs> like, that's a real story for me. Like, that's a real story of triumph, you know. Yeah, it's like, true. Like, yeah. Overcoming hardship. Now, why and... is the villain always disfigured? <laughs> why? Just let a disfigured person be the hero, okay? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and also, they, they, she's part, like, the, the, the evil people, you know, they're part of the, the Nazi regime, mm-hmm. okay? Let's leave the Germans alone, all right? <laughs> it happened such a long time ago. God, just give them a break, all right? It's a fantasy world. You don't need to just keep bringing up these old issues, all right? So that, other than that, great movie. <laughs> oh, actually, though, this is the other thing, right? She, the first guy she meets, the guy who lands on the beach, mm-hmm. right? Perfect human. Can you give spoiler alerts? You don't want to give it if you yeah. haven't seen no, the movie. No, it's been out it long cares. enough. It's been out long enough, all yeah, right? Fair enough. Get over it. Yeah. <laughs> Send your complaints at Triple R. <laughs> Some real talk this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm, I'm saying also, so the first man she meets is a top bloke. He's like this American... He's an American guy who's a spy for the British. Doesn't even need to be a spy for them. You know, yes. volunteers. <laughs> Pro bono spy work. Uh, and he's ripped, good looking. And she goes, oh, are you the average man? You go, you could say I'm above average. I'm like, what a poor representation of men. Like, that's the first man she meets. Like, if she really met a real guy in the world, like, back in those times, he'd just have a beer gut and be, like, trying to use innuendo all the time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, he wouldn't be a cool guy. Like, yeah, not all men. Not all men are that cool. Like, please, please make him a pig. Like, just pig him up, you know? <laughs> I can't wait to see your version. Yeah, so, yeah if it was my it. version, disfigured woman with chemistry degree d- kills, the, kills the guy straight away and just wins. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. great stuff. Hey, um, we've got to let you go, but something you want to plug before before we go? Oh yes, I've been making uh, sketches with the terrific uh, people from Buncha B U N C H A. Check out their Facebook page for my Be a Good Citizen TV channel. If you want to see more gold, more hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't know anything about movies or people. All right, so anyway, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. You, but, you know comedy. You're doing a great job. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Triple R. This show is Breakfasters with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. A Long Way From Home is the new novel by one of Australia's most acclaimed writers, Peter Carey. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters, Peter. Good morning. <laughs> thanks for coming. I'm awake. I really am. <laughs> yeah, see, uh, thanks for coming, particularly for coming down with a cold. One of the major themes of this book is Indigenous dispossession. It's a book that begins in the 50s in Bacchusmarsh, where you were born. In the book, none of the characters initially know anything about Indigenous history. I was curious, and was that your experience growing up? What were you taught as a child about Indigenous Australia? Oh, nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing that I remember from school, but then I was not a great student anyway. But, you know, the sort of 
things that are passed through the family, like my it's probably my great grandfather wa- walking through the, walking through the bush at night to go to Castle Main to get a job, and having to you know sleep out in the bush, and hearing Aboriginals and their corroborees and the general thing of, of fear you know that was associated with his experience in the bush at night. Imagine you know there's all these black people out there. Yeah, well, okay. So that sort of level, but you know, of course, Bacchus Marsh was part of the land and was filled with once with indigenous people, and they left marks, of course, you know, on trees and things of places where they made canoes. And when we were kids, we knew that, but we had so, we had no curiosity at all that I can think of. Central to the plot also is a thing called the Red X Trial, if I'm Mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing that right, which I'd never heard of before. Could you explain what that is to people? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You have these people that sponsor this big race that for a while was really famous, the Red X people, and even then I don't think anyone knew what Red X was. (laughs) So it it, it was an additive. I think it was an oil additive uh, or an upper cylinder lubricant or something. However... Uh, so the name became famous, but the product never really did. But what the, the notion was that uh, there would be a, what's called a reliability uh, trial rather than a flat-out race, and uh, cars that you know you, you or I might just drive to work, uh, unaltered in any major aspect, would then tear around Australia, uh, breaking themselves <laughs> in half, uh, probably, and... And, of course, it was a race, even though everyone said it wasn't a race. And uh, the police always knew it was a race. The police were really waiting for these awful red X drivers. And uh, and they were meant to um, just go at a certain sedate speed and arrive at a certain time. You lost points if you got there too early. But there was a lot of fast driving too, of course. And did you have an experience with that in your youth? Is that how you came to know about it? Yeah, well, that's how I started to think about it. I think I was a kid, and I don't know what year it would have been, but it was probably 53 maybe. Anyway, it was the year the Red X went through Bacchus Marsh where I lived, and, uh, which in those days had a population, I suppose, of four or 5,000 people. Um, my mum and dad had a, had a GM dealership, and... I don't think anyone asked them to stay open all night. (laughs) 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 But they did. (laughs) Uh, Just in case. I mean, it's a very glamorous event, so they're taking part... Just by staying open, they're they're taking part in a glamorous event. And their notion was uh, if any Holdens had any trouble, they were there. Uh, No one needed our help, but I, as a kid, got to stay up very, very late at night and see the cars, you know, all covered in dust and beat up and with their bull bars bent and all that, come cruising through this little town. And there was a radio personality in those days who was very, very famous and whose name was Jack Davey. And Jack Davey had a sort of a call, call on radio which would go, hi-ho, everybody. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and Jack Davey drove through Bacchus Marsh with his window down in his Red X car and I was standing there on the footpath and Jack Davey said, hi-ho, <laughs> <laughs> And we're sort of thrilling. <laughs> um, so that's a, yeah, it's such a long, long time ago and it's sort of impossible really now to think a whole country was insanely excited about this. If you look at the old newsreels and you look at the crowds, you know, the cars leaving Sydney, it's amazing. Yeah. And then as they go, so who, who would bother 
really to think about these passionate arguments about whether a Ford was too tinny or, or, a, or I'm sorry, a Holden was too tinny, it was always said, well, and the Ford was a better car. And people would have fistfights about this sort of thing. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's the context of that society. And, of course, uh, the thing that occurred to me, you know, is all these cars are roaring around Australia. And in a way, uh, not to be too derogatory, it was sort of like we were sort of pissing, pissing on the, around the fence, making, defining our, our territory. Mm. And um, it occurred to me looking at some of these, and they are sort of very interesting old newsreels, and you see a Peugeot 203 up the top end going, driving through this cloud of bulldust. <laughs> uh, uh, but the other two. And... Um, I thought if you guys were driving up the middle of a cathedral, you really wouldn't know it. You don't know where you are. So that, that's sort of where I started to think about yeah, the right. book. Like a, it's a book really of two sets of maps, whitefella maps and blackfella maps. And, of course, in those days, we really were very, very ignorant. I mean, that's the notion of something like a storyline. I would never even glimpse such a thing. And the notion of what um, blackfella religion might be was... Zero, mm. nothing of any importance. When I was reading this book, I found myself thinking about Bliss, your first novel, in which the Australian nature is in some ways a sanctuary from the corruption mm. of the city. In this book, precisely because of what you've been describing, the bush has a sort of darker kind of role because of that association with frontier violence and um, and that history. Is that a useful comparison is this book in some way a problematization of of bliss of that oh. in in light of indigenous history there's a trouble with readers you really can't control them. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean thank you i mean it's an interesting reading hadn't occurred to me at all um and i think that if you wanted to talk about the bush in bliss it's sort of similar, you know it's almost a romanticization of the, of the bush in a way uh in this, the country seen through the eyes of the white characters is sort of in one sense what it is. For us, it can kill you. <laughs> and, and, and in a sense, the, for country, for black people, it's country. It's not, they're not, well, it can kill them too. But it's not how people think about country. So the sense of the hostility of the environment is the hostility perceived by, by these white travellers, I think, primarily. Hmm. Um, I'm interested in the research that you did for the book. There's a scene where one of the characters produces a general certificate of exemption, mm. which reads, this document entitles the bearer, half-caste Aboriginal known as Lucky Peterson, one, to leave the station, the Quamby Down station, two, to walk freely throughout town without being arrested, three, to enter hot uh, hotel, NB, speaking in native language, prohibited. Was that based on a real document? Yes. Oh, and, wow. and, and, uh when I was talking to people, uh, I saw I saw two of these documents that people had been issued with, Indigenous people had been issued with. But if you want to go online, pal, there's <laughs> there's thousands of them, and the, and the wording is quite various, but it's all as disgusting as that. And um, actually, I, I was I did an event with Stan Grant in Sydney the other night, and um, he talked about the the, the experience of his. Grandfather, I think, speaking to his father in language on the street, and them being beaten by the police, of, you know, almost you know, 
killed uh, by cops for speaking in language. Wow. Um, the question of who can write about Indigenous history has been a vexed one. Recently, uh, came spectacularly to the surface um, in the controversy at the Brisbane Writers' Festival over Lionel Shriver's defence of cultural appropriation. That must have been running through your head when you were working on this book. Where did you stand on that on that debate when it happened? Oh, I, I thought she was an embarrassment. And is it true? Uh, I, I did see the speech when it happened. But I think didn't she didn't she stand on stage wearing a sombrero? She did stand on stage wearing right, yep. right to do that, and you know well, that's a sort of there's a, there's a big assumption there that actually that the hall isn't going to be half full of Mexicans who're going to see that she looks like a total dick, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and the only sort of humour in that is ignorance and insult, and she can of course she has the freedom to be ignorant and insulting, uh, but. It's not a very pretty thing, and I don't know why anyone would want to walk down that path. My point of view is, well, one is always, in any case, hesitant before occupying another person's position, someone who's culturally or ethnically different. But it is also the writer's job. Mm. Uh, and I think Lionel Shriver probably said that. You know, it, it is somebody's job in the society to imagine what it is to be somebody else. And writing an, uh, a novel or producing literature is, should, should be a work of huge empathy. Um, this doesn't involve standing on stages with sombreros on your head. Um, I, for a long time, I've always thought this, and we, most of us would think, this is the story of our country. We know that a few hundred years ago uh, the Indigenous people were surviving that had for 50, 60,000 years and our white ancestors arrived and caused mayhem and murder and, and stole land and killed people and stories. So it's, on the one hand I've thought I don't want to be messing and causing misinformation about another culture because I think that's destructive. But on the other hand, this is a white story too. We can't not be part... We are part of this story. We made, If you remove the white component from this, nothing would have happened. Um, so it seemed to me to, it's important, even al allowing for, for the enormous uh, imaginative gulf, it was important for me to find a way to engage with it. And among the many ways about that, most of which are too many, which are sort of too technical to go mm -hmm. on at this time of the morning, um, a lot of it is just to have patience, humility, respect, to talk to a lot of people, to really listen to their answers, and in my process of in, in this was you know over whatever it was two or three years that's. What I did, I wrote, but I also listened and read and learned a lot. And when I had a manuscript at the end, um, and there'd been consultation about various things all the way through, some of them were white anthropologists who are very good middle people because they're often spending their life on both sides of, of, of that line. Um, so in, uh, various Indigenous people read my manuscript. And of course I was nervous. Mm -hmm. And of course I thought, what if they say this is garbage what am I going to do then and how am I but it didn't turn it didn't work out like that and um, the relief for me 
to have someone like Stan Grant read my book and say it's a terrific book means more to me than anything. Or Steve, Steve Kinane, also a you know, wonderful Indigenous writer. So those were, those were the big test points for me uh, that, that you can listen and you can... I, I'd never attempted to occupy the... Um, go inside uh, Indigenous characters, but I always had their actions and the way they spoke and what they did. It's quite rightly for me... Yeah, the the people who, whose heads we go inside are, are white people who have been ignorant and then are confused and then want to go home. <laughs> so um, when they are home. Just quickly, um, you grew up in Bacchus Marsh yeah. and it's a town that features in this book and in your other works as well. Mm-hmm. Relationships with hometowns can be quite complex. Mm-hmm. Why do you keep returning to that in your work and has anything in your relationship with your hometown changed through doing that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I visit my hometown every time I come to Australia and I see my sister and my brother and, and then I leave. I don't think anything too bad's happened because I, I think I would have heard. <laughs> um, and quite a few people from Bacchus Marsh went, went to a reading, came down to a reading I did last night, which, 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 which I really liked. Uh, my sister, you know, I was sent away to boarding school at the age of 11 and my sister would say, how can you, how can you write about Bacchus Marsh? You never even lived there. <laughs> so... Um, I return to it because um, always for a slightly different different reasons. I mean, the character in Illiwaka, and in Amnesia, um, Felix Moore, the sort of slightly inebriated journalist, um, claims to come from a Beckers Marsh and a car dealership. But I will tell you that actually I was thinking of somebody quite different to me and I didn't want anyone to think it was that person. So I, gave, I, gave, I threw in the Beckers Marsh and the car dealership to really throwing dust ah. in the air. Uh, that, that particular individual is no longer with us, so uh, I, I can be rash. <laughs> Not in giving you his name, but in, in explaining that. And, and, in this, and in this particular case, the memory of the Red X trial was so rooted in that. And, and uh, you know, and I did, even if in the end I had to research the car dealership and I had to ask my family, you know, uh, about financing cars and so on and, and, and even about the cars themselves. You know, I, my, my brother, who's 10 years older than I am, was very carefully instructing me by email how to disassemble the air cleaner on an FJ Holden. (laughs) And I did it. And when he read it, he he corrected me again because I misunderstood certain things. So all that sort of... It's lying there. Bacchus Marsh is part of my life. And and I I guess I could have used Colac... Uh, But I would have had to do a lot more work, uh, a lot more research to find out about growing up in Colac in the 50s. The book is A Long Way From Home. It's published by Penguin. We've been talking to its author, Peter Carey. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.